Um, so we want, but however, we want to be honest that um, sincerity does not substitute for the truth. Right? You can you can still be wrong, and um, of course, a lot of evangelism is thinking through how we can explain error to folks and and present the truth uh, while maintaining relationship. So my recommendation is, and it's benefited me a lot, that when you're engaging with other people who believe differently, your first step should be to seek to understand rather than to persuade. Now, that's the first step. Eventually there has to be a step that involves addressing um, the issue at root. But um, anyway, the point being the first step is to seek to understand. All right, um, page one, um, I got the date correct this week. We're still on part four, uh, the topic of salvation and church membership, um, part four. So I list out the previous lessons. Uh, we started with, actually, um, the community of, of God's people and the fact that God has historically chooses, or you can use the word elects a community, but the community he now chooses are those in Christ. And that phrase is going to be important today, the phrase in Christ. Then we spent some time talking about how um, the community God chooses, the fellowship we have in him, uh, we're united in the Holy Spirit. And then uh, we talked about how the definition of the church comes from Jesus' mission on earth and the mission he has uh, charged us with, which is to seek and save the lost. Um, that is achieved through Jesus' death. Um, so then I'm looking at the fourth bullet point there on page one. The two New Testament writers give five different descriptions of the significance of the death of Jesus, which is what we use, uh, a, a, a sort of a religious word, is atonement. Um, and then last week we said, okay, this is what God has done. Now we need to move to what the human response would be. And last week we spent a lot of time talking about faith. Um, and we identified three elements of faith, intellect, emotions, and will. Remember, I acknowledged those elements, you won't find them listed explicitly in the scripture, though they are implied, for instance, in Abraham's experience um, in Genesis. So today we move from faith to baptism as a response to God's action. And we're going to spend time today talking about three meanings of baptism, meaning um, a, a simpler, if you don't like that phrase, what, what does baptism mean? We're just going to say it this way. What happens in baptism? What, what is accomplished in that moment when a person is immersed in the water? Okay. So, um, I want to explain the approach. For one, remember this is the fundamentals of faith, so we might review some things that you're familiar with, that you understand. Um, I think we also have to be honest that this is often, for us, the starting place of Bible study or evangelism, right? Like, this is the conversation, because we know this is where this has to happen. And so, um, maybe you're like me, um, it's typical, it's normal, because people may have heard of that word or familiar with it when you're discussing uh, following Jesus, that we start with baptism. It's elements, it's practice. You know, we might talk about things like uh, immersion versus sprinkling or adults versus infants. Um, we might say it's something like it's essential, it's for believers, and these are all true statements. Um, they're statements the Bible is unequivocal about. So that's that's we probably won't spend much of the time today talking about the elements or its actual practice, because what I would offer to you today, and the reason we're going to talk about the meaning of baptism, is that if you start with the meaning of baptism rather than its ends, the ends become more clearly logical. 
So it's the same reason that the church's mission is clear because of Jesus' mission, right? And Jesus' identity. So if we start with the meaning of baptism, what, what it actually achieves, what happens there, the questions about how do we do it, who should do it, um, when do we do it, you know, what age, and all, they become uh, more logical. Um, they sort of answer themselves if we know and agree on the meaning of baptism. Um, because what you'll find is sometimes um, either you, you're not working from a shared definition of what happens in baptism, or you actually are. You, you agree on what happens, um, and so the discussion becomes about working with folks towards the conclusion uh, of, of that meaning. So, anyway, if, if, if that sounds um, a little vague or you're not sure, um, that's fine too. We're just going to talk about the three meanings of baptism today, and I have some questions. Don't worry, Mike, on page two you can see i got a chart in this handout. I'm feeling really good. Tables. Tables and charts. I love it. All right. So, it won't surprise this crew that the first thing we're going to talk about when we talk about the meaning of baptism or what happens in baptism is the forgiveness of sins. And we're going to start with, um, if we had a flag for our church, right, for, for East Side or the Churches of Christ, we'd probably put Acts 2.38 on it, right? And, and, you know, we can chuckle and laugh. It's true. I, I can remember the preacher at Wilshire when I was in college. His name was Chuck Monan. He was joking one time about, um, you know, his preaching and it being long and what he should talk about. And he said, you know, if I just got up every Sunday and preached Acts 2.38, I'd keep my job forever. You know, so he, he, knew, um, he knew what it was about. Um, but it is important because this time in uh, the history of Christendom, is after Jesus has been uh, raised, right? He's ascended. And the question is, we hear for the first time, what do we do in response to his death and resurrection? Like, this is the first time. And so it's no accident that we always refer here because it's the crucial first instance of folks responding to the gospel, right? And so Acts 2, 37, 38 states this purpose of baptism, that it is to forgive sins. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I bolded, be baptized in the forgiveness of sins, because I want to make explicit. Peter here in Acts 2, as Luke records, he's, he's, it's unequivocal. Baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. Now, um, what Dr. Ferguson, and if you can remember, uh, when I refer to Dr. Ferguson, he's the, he's the scholar who wrote the book that I'm basing this uh, series on. Um, he gives this really great um, use, or sorry, explanation of how we know baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so if you look in the verse um, that Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, I want to focus on that for thee. Okay? So Dr. Ferguson explained, um, I'm on letter B, that the Greek sentence construction is a regular way of expressing a goal. So instead of for, you could substitute for or unto or even the phrase in order to obtain. You are baptized in order to obtain the forgiveness of sins. Now, some folks might argue with the Greek or they, that might sound like a conclusion that they're not comfortable with. And so what... what um, Dr. Ferguson does is he goes to Matthew 26, 28, 
where that same sentence construction is used, but with different concepts. So now I'm on letter C. Exactly the same construction and wording occurs in Matthew 26, 28, where Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So in Acts, Peter says, Baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. And in Matthew, that same sentence construction is used when Jesus says, My blood is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So, the conclusion is this, if you, is letter D. No one would suggest that Jesus' blood was poured out because of the forgiveness of sins. Because that's, that's the common sort of undoing of Acts 2.38, is that it means something other than what it says. Jesus didn't die because sins were already forgiven, nor was his blood poured out as a symbol of the forgiveness of sins. Have you heard those two objections to baptism as before? Yes, that it's either a symbol or it's, it's representing something that's already happened. <coughs> Dr. Ferguson's point is that those readings don't make sense unless you believe the same thing about Jesus' blood in Matthew 26 and 28. Well, we don't believe that. I mean, that, that's nonsensical. Doesn't Jesus' blood wasn't symbolic. It, it was literal. Okay? So, there is no doubt that the blood was shed in order to bring about the forgiveness of sins. And so, the argument then is that the same translation must be given to Acts 2.38. So, this isn't to suggest that the water of baptism is equivalent to the blood of the cross. Please don't leave with that conclusion or thinking that. But what we're doing here is showing that the wording requires the same grammatical meaning the same object or goal. So, um, and, and this is the conclusion, the blood provides forgiveness by the divine action. God is doing something in the blood. Baptism, the word that, that Ferguson uses is appropriates. That means you take your part of forgiveness for the repentant believer. Now, I want to pause here and say, I don't offer all this. This is not where I would start in a Bible study or with somebody who's even familiar with baptism as part of responding to the gospel. But I do think it is good for this group to understand, hey, here's, here's the explanation for why baptism is for the forgiveness of sins. Um, and here's a, an understanding of the language used that helps support that, that claim or that conclusion. So again, maybe I lost you here, that's okay. Um, I'm learning it myself too. Um, but the basic point is, if Jesus' blood is for the forgiveness of sins, then the baptism can be forgiveness of sins because of the grammatical construction here. There is an alternative. When Isaiah was in the throne of God, he said, I'm a sinner. I can't go about preaching for you. God said, okay. Tell the angel to get a coal and burn his lips. He could have told us that instead of Baptist. It would have been the same thing. If God says do it. Sure. Thank you, Wes. Thank you for that. So, um, one of the ways that's common in the New Testament, now we're to the table here on page two. One of the ways that it's common to, for New Testament writers to describe or explain the forgiveness of sins that happens in baptism is by the imagery of washing or cleansing. That's used over and over again. The association of cleansing, of washing, with the forgiveness of sins. Um, if you'll allow another corny joke, I remember being at Burnt Cabin Christian Camp with the Broken Arrow Church of Christ one summer when I was in college, and a young woman, a young lady, uh, 15, 16 years old, decided to get baptized. And they did it in the swimming pool, 
And when she came out, um, one of the deacons that was there, he said, hey, you see how dirty that water is? And of course, you know, she's kind of panicked. And he goes, it's all your sins in there, you know. And so um, I've used that a couple times. It's, a, it's an okay show. But <laughs> the point being, even playfully, we understand that there's something represented in cleansing or washing associated with baptism and forgiveness of sins. And so I list those. We've got Acts 16, um, where Paul is describing to his audience what Ananias said to him in Damascus at the time of Paul's com- conversion. And the point would be, the power's not in the water, the power's not in the act, the power's in Christ. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. 1 Peter 3.21, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. So Peter's clearly distinguishing a baptismal washing from an ordinary bath. And what's interesting here is, you all know this, you've been immersed other times in your life, right? You've been swimming, you've been under a bath. I don't know, maybe your friend pushed you in the pool. But the point is, those weren't baptism. The intent matters. Like what you're doing, what you say is being achieved in that moment matters, right? Um, and and that can, that's an interesting discussion for uh, folks who were um, immersed maybe with another religious group. Um, that's an interesting point. Page 3, we continue here. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.11, But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Um, The washing of baptism involves being set apart as God's holy people and receiving the justification that comes through faith. Now we're talking about, you know, we're connecting to two lessons ago when we talked about the atonement. I just thought it was interesting that um, Dr. Furson is clear, 1 Corinthians 6.11, he says that that refers to baptism. Um, Quick question. Yes. On this first... uh, deal on the chart here, Acts 16.22, that doesn't seem to be correct. I don't know which one it is. I was trying to find it. Oh, did I mistype the verse? I'm guessing. It's definitely not a good reference. I wonder if it's 22.16. If you you find it, if you hunt that down, help us out. I don't want to lead anybody astray on the verse there. I'll blame my secretary. I need to fire her. <laughs> it is reverse. It's 2216. All right. There you go. Fire him. Get him a new job. It's 2216. Thank you for that. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. Again, a, a passage that I have not heard referred to often in discussing baptism, but Dr. Ferguson is clear that, that he thinks it's a reasonable conclusion that it's about baptism or references baptism at least. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Baptism is referred to in the phrases, our bodies washed with, I'm sorry, I should just say phrase, our bodies washed with pure water. The heart is, quote, sprinkled clean, which means purified, the, the inner sanctification from a guilty conscience at the same time, the body receives the outward washing. So, um, and then these last comments here. Water itself does not touch sins, but washing in water perfectly symbolizes what takes place when the command <coughs> which forgiveness is conditioned is obeyed. So again, I want to, 
I was I, I debated using the word symbol there because I don't want somebody to, to walk away thinking I said baptism is a symbol or that Dr. Ferguson did. That's not the case at all. Um, it, the point is that the washing in water um, does symbolize what takes place um, when you obey the condition of forgiveness, which is baptism. Um, the act of baptism corresponds to the cleansing that is promised when it is obeyed. Maybe you like corresponds better than symbolizes. All right, lot to, lot to soak in there. Again, the main point is, if we talk about what baptism means, one of the things we can say, of course, is that your sins are forgiven. Um, so I ask this. From whatever perspectives uh, uh, somebody might have uh, that's not a part of, that's not already in God's family, maybe they have some experience with, with baptism or the Bible, maybe they're brand new to the concept. Um, I'm asking you. What, what do you think might be difficult to understand about this purpose of baptism? And, and maybe that was your experience. Maybe this part of baptism, how does it forgive my sins? Um, how might that be difficult? And then I ask a, probably a tougher question is, can you think of a way to respond to that difficulty? And maybe you draw on one of these verses. I don't, I don't know. But what might be difficult about thinking of baptism as forgiveness of sins? Yes. I wonder when they, you're talking to an individual that's never been associated with baptism, mm -hmm. but they know a little bit about God and about prayer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we always uh, talk about how God forgives our sins if we just ask Him. And sometimes they don't relate. Why do I have to be baptized? Why can't I just ask God for forgiveness? Right. Right. It's a great point. Like, why, why is this necessary if I know I can talk to him directly? For some folks, Wes already gave us the response, right? Wes said, God ordained it. That's what God chose. Right? I bet that many of you, especially for folks that, that aren't familiar with the idea of God as authority, right? that's not sufficient originally. Now, they got to deal with that idea at some point if they're going to be a Christian, right? Because there's a host of things that are, not a host of things, the, the fundamental relationship is one of authority, right? Love, care, coming from authority. Can you tell I'm stalling a little bit? I'm, I'm, I'm being honest that for some folks, that response is enough. Um, for other folks, um, I think that um, I'm going to draw on y'all's wisdom too. Um, for me, it becomes an acknowledgement that There is a ritual, right, by a repeated act. That's all I mean by ritual. It has meaning. By which God says, this is where that forgiveness happens, right? Um, that there is something, I'm going to use a word here, it's not in the Bible, metaphysical. So physical means you and me can touch and see it. Meta means it's beyond that. What you think, when I prayed earlier today that somebody would be healed, right, that I'm asking for metaphysical, right, something that, that um, is outside of what we can see and touch. So something metaphysical is happening in baptism. If, if you don't like that word, I use some words here, cleansing, symbolizes, uh, corresponds. Um, I'm just being honest here. I'm not, I'm not certain that I have a great answer for that beyond what baptism means, which we're going to keep getting into in God's authority. Yeah, Wes? Baptism. 
uh, is not something that I do to myself. Whenever you die, you do not bury yourself. God says, if you will submit to a physical action, and I'll tell you what I want it to be in Acts 2.38, the power of the Holy Spirit through an inspired apostle, then you will be. We don't do it to ourselves. We don't earn our salvation by doing it. That's one of the common criticisms. We submit to something God has said, just like burning a prophet's lips to make him pure enough to go preach for God, just like accepting circumcision for Abraham and all of his descendants made them children of Abraham. We submit to something that God says, do this. Maybe, David, that's another alternative is, as Wes just uh, very insightfully explained, is to say some promises of God are conditional. And the promise of forgiveness is conditioned upon something that you submit to, right? Not that you earn, not that you do, that you submit to. Thank you for that, Wes. Thank you for that question. How, how do you address that when you're thinking about a young Christian? Um, I know we talk well, I know when I was teaching... School, I would talk a lot about the age of innocence and study kids and understand, you know, well, when you're at a point that you're mature enough to understand, but I think it also comes to adults when they're at a point mature enough to understand, you really can't get them to baptism anyways. Because until you can understand that you're fully submitting to something like Wes just said, that until then you really can't. But before then, you can still pray, you can still, you know, but the completion of everything. But I think that... I think that's a challenge in adults' mindsets to think, well, you know, you see somebody and you're having a conversation with somebody that's more your age, and it's hard to think, does that apply to them or not apply to them? How do you, and I think that's a challenge that I have at this point in life, you know, now when you're talking to younger kids, it's easier to explain to them. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I think it's, sometimes it's hard to admit, David, if, if I, I'm going to interpret your question just a little bit, maybe this isn't where you were headed, but it's hard to admit that if somebody's not ready to submit to baptism, then maybe they're not ready to submit to God and follow in Christ. Again, I don't want to sound critical or harsh or judgmental, but I'm just being honest. Well, I've, I've, I've sort of uh, uh, rambled my way into 15 minutes left, David, so we're going to go to point two. Thank you for that very challenging question, very important question. Um, what happens in baptism? Another meaning, another way to talk about baptism, another, way that, or another thing that happens during baptism is death and resurrection. Yours, um, or symbolically, or, or um, uh, not literally, but um, also corresponding to Jesus' death and resurrection. So Romans 6, 3-11 is the key passage here. Um, it connects baptism and its saving effects with the death and resurrection of Christ. So maybe this is a good answer to your question too, David, is why baptism? Why do we have to do that? Because you have to die and be resurrected just like Jesus was. Okay, Romans 6. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The baptism is when that death and then the coming out of the water and the resurrection happens. Okay? So I, I bolded all the parts that have to do with the Christian dying like Christ died and being raised like Christ was raised. So that's also what, what happens at baptism. Um, One challenge with these verses that sometimes can be challenging is, you know, just like you state here, you know, Christ died and he was risen so death doesn't have anything over him. But we have to realize sin, just because we've been washed for our sin, doesn't mean we're not going to sin again and still have to repent and ask for forgiveness. And so it's not like, you know, it's hard to explain. Well, you're dead to sin, but sin can still happen to us. I'm like, yeah, Jesus isn't going to die again. He doesn't, you know. yeah. I think that's a, I've been in a conversation with that before. So. No, that yeah. conversation is difficult. If I'm dead to sin, why do I keep sinning? Right? Yeah. It was taken away from me metaphysically, David. You like that word. Then <laughs> why do I keep doing it? Um, and, and the importance of repentance, you know. So, Thank you for that honesty, David. Um, and it, I think it's okay to sometimes admit to folks like, let's read some more, let's study some more. I don't, I don't have a gr- I'm still struggling with that too, and I've been following Jesus for, you know, how many years. Um, so, Thank you, David. In letter B, as Christ died, was buried, and was raised, so baptism expresses death to sin, the burial of the old self, and resurrection to a new life. Um, even Paul says, just like Jesus was crucified in baptism, your old self is crucified and buried. Um, and then letter D, just very plainly, I, I say here, Dr. Ferguson says, God does this in baptism. And that's one thing I hope you leave with today is that a common response, as Wes mentioned, to baptism as necessary for the forgiveness of sins is that it's a work, right? You're trying to say you can earn your salvation. We're saying no. If we understand baptism correctly, um, what we see happens there, God does it. So I'm submitting. I'm not achieving, right? Um, And again, my point is, rather than starting there and saying baptism isn't a work, let's talk about baptism's meaning and what happens in it, and that will give us the foundation to understand that it, it isn't to work. So then I liked how Dr. Ferguson said this, what happened to Christ historically happens to others, to you and me, spiritually. So, page four. Um, also one that said, all of us who have been baptized have been. <clears throat> Paul's concerned to everybody who's been put under water for the forgiveness of sins. All Christians. I use the term, and and when I teach online, baptized believer, as opposed to saved or what church. I just say, all who have been baptized, all who are baptized believers. That's a good way. Thank you, Wes. So, um, there's a there was a way Dr. Ferguson discussed what happens with baptism and the death and resurrection of Christ that I just felt compelled to share with you all. He uses some words, and you'll see in one, two, three at the top here. He's going to use the word participates. That you, when you were baptized, you participated in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He's going to say there's you shared in that experience. And he says that participation, that sharing, makes baptism a richly meaningful act. He's not going to say that you just repeated what Christ did, that you imitated. 
And then he uses this phrase, I wasn't really sure what it meant, but I copied it and I put quotes around it so I could be honest about that. Ferguson says, what Christ did becomes operative in the life of the believer. The believer dies to sin and lives a new life. And perhaps, David, that's part of the response to the question you raised is, you die to sin over and over again, not just in baptism, but every time you refuse it, every time you live the new life in Christ. Um, and so, that answers a great question, which is how can what Christ did affect you today? And the way it works is, we spent a lot of time describing five ways that Jesus' death brings new life to people. Well, baptism connects that atonement to you. The way uh, my father-in-law, Dale Hartman, always said it is, baptism is where you come in contact with the blood of Christ. Amen. So, um, some other passages linking or saying that, that um, baptism is the death and resurrection is Colossians 2.12 and 1 Peter 3.18-22. Um, I asked this question, which unfortunately we don't have time for because I want to get to this last one, but it's a good one for you to reflect on. Dr. Ferguson says that baptism is a sharing in Christ's experience. He then says the sharing makes baptism a richly meaningful act. So, as we talked about, when the first step for many of us in talking to people about the gospel and evangelism is just consider your own story. Share your own life. So it would be significant for you to think through and have an answer to, what did your baptism mean to you? So um, that's what I asked there. Meaning three here today, um, what happens in baptism? Membership in the church. You have, you become a member of the church. This is established uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, 14, that baptism places you in the church by God's action. It reads, Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. I baptized that part because this passage is, is honestly, its large focus is on uh, what it means to be part of the body, but implicit in it is the assumption from Paul that he articulates right here that baptism adds you to that body. Of course, that begs the question, what body? Well, the body of Christ. We, I said at the beginning of the lesson, who were you baptized into or what were you baptized for? You were baptized into Christ. And so the logic is, if you look in letter E, um, when you're baptized, you're baptized into Christ. Being in Christ puts you in the people of God or among the people of God. The church is that people. And then, therefore, that means you were baptized into the church, the people of God. And what this means is, if you look back up at letter C and D, this was interesting to me. I'd never heard baptism described this way. It is Baptism is an individual act. You have to do it to be saved, right? You have to do it to be become part of Christ. But because it make, makes you a member of the church, it's also a social act. You are now part of God's people. And the reason that's important is something that I think this group already accepts. Because baptism is also a social act, it means now... You are responsible to God's people, right? Like when you become a member of the body, you now have some duties, some obligations, some responsibilities that you have to fulfill. And every time y'all hug somebody, encourage somebody, love somebody, serve somebody, help somebody move, you're fulfilling that responsibility, of course. Okay. And then um, I gave you some quotes from Dr. Ferguson that I thought 
beautifully illustrated that. Uh, and then I ask the question, Dr. Ferguson calls baptism a social act. What do you think is the significance of baptism being described as a social act? Um, and I think, again, when you think about why you talk to folks about baptism, you can say, you know, it's not just for you, it's, it's bringing you into this body that you get to be a part of. We all did this ritual. We all did this act of submission, this act of obedience. And now in fact, you're part you of cannot us. do it to yourself. It requires two people. Somebody has to do it to you. It is inherently social. <coughs> Thank you, Wes. That is exactly right. Nobody's ever in the Bible baptizes themselves. Okay. So um, I have a conclusion here, but I, I want to, again, return to my point about discussing the meaning of baptism often answers its practices, its elements. Wes just did that. So a common question of its practice is, can I baptize myself? Does somebody have to baptize me? Well, yes, because it's an act of submission. I'll say it this way. Is baptism a social act? I try to present to you that it is. If baptism is a social act, if it makes you part of Christ's body, then doesn't it make sense that someone would have to do it to you? That a member of Christ's body would have to do you? That's a minor question that comes up sometimes. Is somebody Can somebody who's not baptized baptize me? That doesn't come up a ton. But this would, if you discuss the meaning of baptism as being added to the church, that answers that question for you, doesn't it? In a meaningful way. Um, so that, we also need a witness to that baptism that's part of the social? That's a really interesting question. I don't, I don't know that I've ever been asked that, but I would say yes, Melba. Like, I lean towards, let's set aside legalism for, you know, the legalistic. I would say, isn't it good and healthy and godly to have people observe and watch? Now, I, we also don't, we know people that were like scared to go on, on Sunday morning to, to get dunked in front of 150 people? Sure, sure. I, I think everybody's probably got one of the stories I have of, of a person I knew who was my age who was secretly holding out because they were afraid of, of being immersed in front of 200 people. And when they found out they could do it by themselves with a the small group of people, they rushed. They literally nearly got a speeding ticket to get to church and get baptized. So thank you, Wes and Melba, because you just did what I'm urging all of us to do is to answer these questions about the practice of baptism, who, when, how, look at its meaning. That will help you answer those questions rather than searching for a verse that specifically says this or that. So, for instance, um, let's just start with this question. If, if you ask this question and consider it from the meaning of baptism, you'll get these answers. Who should be baptized? Right? We can ask that a lot of ways, right? Who should be baptized? Children? Babies? Adults, right? Someone who needs sins forgiven, right? That's who should be baptized. Someone who needs their sins forgiven. Someone who wants to die to the old way of life. Someone who wants to be part of the community of the saved, the body of Christ, right? So, um, I'm, again, I'm, I'm, I don't have a lot of time, and I don't want to risk offending somebody without a ton of explanation, okay? So, a common question might be, how can infants join the church, right? How do all family members become part of the church? That can be an earnest, honest question, right? If we think of baptism as becoming part of God's people, right? You're, it's a social act as becoming part of the church. And we say we have responsibilities to each other. Then I would ask, what responsibilities can an infant fulfill? None, okay? An infant cannot be responsible to the community in a way that someone who um, 
than an adult or whatever age you might think, but they can't be. So the meaning of baptism as being added to the church helps us answer that question. And again, I want, by sensitivity here, I mean I want to acknowledge that that conversation is much broader, deeper. There's a lot of a lot of more stuff involved. So I'm being humble, I hope, with that thought. But I just wanted to express or illustrate what I mean by consider the meaning first, and that helps you answer some of the questions. Okay. The last thing, if you thank y'all for hanging back after the bell, I just want to read this conclusion out loud. The most, imp- the most important thing to acknowledge here is that even in baptism, God is doing the work. God gives baptism its meaning, its purpose, its significance. The person being baptized is passive in baptism. Being baptized accurately expresses complete submission and receptiveness of grace.